Hello and welcome to Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. I am Jay Hutch. And tonight we are going to be talking about the 1932 biopic, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. I don't know if I'm always going to quite get that title correctly because I've been missaying it for the last couple of days. Uh, this was a bit of a <clears throat> sort of a last minute decision in terms of what I was going to do. I wasn't sure entirely what I was going to talk about. Um, and then I saw this movie, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, just a few days ago. I had never seen it before. Um, saw it for the very first time. It's on the uh, Criterion channel, if you have that app. I saw it on that. It's not a plug for that by any means, but that's uh, where I saw it. And uh, I thought it was a fantastic movie. And actually, I thought before really getting into it, this might be a good opportunity to um, show you all something. Um, so <clears throat> you may or may not have, first of all, you may or may not have heard of this movie. I'm expecting, in fact, potentially nobody who is watching this has seen the movie. Maybe it's quite possible that a year or two down the line, some professor in a class is showing this movie to their students and the student is going to try and find some kind of material on it somewhere to see if somebody has talked about it at all. And they stumble across this video and it's quite possible that, that that's the only person who will have ever seen this movie who is watching this. But uh, I do highly recommend I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Game because it is uh, a, an extraordinary film, and uh, this is what I wanted to share with you that um, I have, uh, some of you may have heard of Letterboxd, I know that some of the people who watch this uh, channel uh, do have a, a Letterboxd, Letterboxd account, um, I have one as well, and the great thing for me about Letterboxd is that you can make lists on it, so I don't know about anybody else, but if you know me very well, you'll know that I am obsessed with lists. If I can turn something into a list, I will do it. Um, one might call it a compulsion. Um, others might call it a, a, a nice little quirk. Um, but uh, that's, the, that's what I call it. I call it a nice little quirk. But I'm sure some people out there might refer to it as the more pejorative former name. Um, but I, of course, use the opportunity to make as many lists as possible on Letterboxd. Um, almost all of them I keep private. The one I'm about to show you is part of my private collection. I know that some of you are uh, not watching the video, you're just listening to it, so I'll do my best to explain it. But uh, I will share with you now this is a thrilling moment for everybody watching, I'm sure. I will show you the, the private list that I have that I've been putting together over the last couple of years of my most favorite movies. Now, I will say right off the bat, there's 232 movies in this list. It's a big list. I actually have two lists. I have this larger list that I'm about to show you that currently has 232. And there's another list that I have going that I'm hoping will 
roughly be when it's complete will be roughly around a hundred movies. So it's a shorter best of list. What I'm about to show you is the longer best of list. This sounds insane. I can tell just as it's coming out of my mouth that it just sounds crazier and crazier. But um, nevertheless, this is a this is a small little insightful window into my psyche. So this is what I, this is, in, if, if I have any spare moments, this is what I'm doing as I'm making these lists. So what I do is I watch, um, I watch a movie and I decide, you know, um, is it, you know, they do like a rating system here at Letterboxd, one to five stars. And if I am so inclined to give it four and a half or five stars, then it ends up in this larger list of favorite movies so now that i built it up i'm gonna i'm gonna actually show it to you um okay see if i can get to it here ah okay great movies list so here it is let me go back to uh, us just to see if it's, okay so you can see it so these are it's in um it's in chronological order so it starts with the earliest movies released um, and moves all the way down to um, contemporary films. But as you can see here uh, from this list, just the other night, this is my most recent edition, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. So I gave it four and a half stars, which means it's not, it wouldn't reach the upper echelon. It's, it's not going to end up in that sort of top, uh, 100 list that I have going on, but it rests very comfortably here in this list right now of top 232. I will tell you what my ambitions are for this particular list. Do you want me to, I'll just, uh, since I'm here, I'll just, and it's private and we've got these ads going on, um, that you will not be able to see it if you ever happen onto my letterboxed collection. I know you're all going to be sort of searching for it and and be stymied if that if I'm using that word correctly that uh, that you haven't been able to find it and that's because it's on uh, private but I'll just sort of quickly go through now you might think oh there's some glaring omissions here in this list and there's two things that I would say for one it's just it's my personal favorite list um, and also there's a lot of gaps in my movie watching history there's a lot of great movies out there that I still haven't seen. And actually along those lines, um, uh, I, I, I've been saying this to more and more people lately along those lines that I'm actually trying to prevent myself from watching certain movies because I have this fear that if I watch all the great movies now, there won't be any more left somewhere down the road. So I try to keep a few classic films or films that I anticipate that I'm going to really like, which sometimes lets me down, to be honest. Sometimes I see a movie that I would I think is going to end up on the list and then doesn't, and that's disappointing. And that will probably happen with a few of these that I've held from myself over the years. But I still do that because you know, it's, I, I, I want to save some movies that I hope will be great for me somewhere in the future. And that includes movies like the red shoes, which I haven't seen. Um, um, I've been working my way for, since I was a teenager through, um, Igmar Bergman's filmography. And I've seen most of them, but I'm saving a movie like Fanny Alexander, which was Fanny and Alexander, which was Ingmar Bergman's last film. I want that to be the last film of 
his that I see. So, um, so I want to make sure that I've watched all of his movies before I sort of cap it off with, with that one. So this is the extent of my, of, of, uh, all my worries and, 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 uh, craziness about these movies. But anyway, these are, um, these are the movies and, and ideally what I would like to eventually two things that I would like, I would like to, to really end up talking about all of these movies on this channel at one point or another. So right now that's 232. I've talked about one of them so far, which was the bicycle thieves, which I talked about with uh, Anders Bergstrom a few weeks ago, a great discussion that we had. And uh, tonight talking about the second, so only 230 more to go. Um, and I think that my ultimate goal for this list is to make the list to be somewhere around uh, what what would be ideal is 365 movies so a movie for each day of the year would be my would be my goal <laughs> anyway I, i've 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 revealed far too much at this point so i i will i will exit out of this uh and and go back to our um go back to our discussion here but yeah so i am a fugitive from a chain gang my most recent addition to that list just saw it a couple of days ago for the first time. Um, a big favorite uh, of mine uh, instantaneously. So I thought I'm, I should talk about it here tonight. And actually, a few of the movies, if you are if you're watching the stream um, rather than listening to it, you will have seen a few other movies that I, I plan to discuss as well. So usually I start with a or lately I have been starting with a synopsis. Uh, of the things that I talk about. And I figure I'll do that with this one as well. Like I said, um, you know, many of you haven't probably haven't seen this movie. I, I really highly recommend it. It's a, it's a pretty exciting movie. There's as far as, you know, my tastes go, there wasn't really a, a dry moment throughout the whole film. Just about every aspect of it was pretty strong. So uh, I do highly recommend it if you have access to it. And uh, uh, but what I am about to tell you is going to be a synopsis as short as I can make it for the whole film. So if you uh, don't like movies being spoiled for you, then I uh, would suggest maybe skipping over this part. It's probably going to be two or three minutes or something along those lines. Um, so uh, but otherwise, if that's not something that worries you, then we'll be on our way with it. All right, so I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. Um, so it's about this character named James Allen. It begins with a very sort of brief episode when James Allen is um, in the war fighting in World War I. Um, but almost immediately after that, he returns home. When he returns home, he gets his old job back, but he doesn't want his old job back. What he really wants is to be an engineer. He has changed while he was in the war and he desires now to be an engineer so he quits his job but there are no jobs for him in town and we soon see him traveling uh all over the country that kind of famous sort of um conceit that they used to use a lot in movies is now when it is used it tends to be more parodied it's not parodied in this film it's shown straight where you have the sort of image of the map and uh, overlaid with the character walking, giving you the impression, of course, of how far he's going, where he's going. So he's traveling from town to town, trying to become an engineer, trying to get a job as an engineer, but no one gives him a job. And in very 
in a very short amount of time, he becomes destitute and he becomes desperate. And one night he accompanies this man to a diner. That man that he accompanies proceeds to proceeds to hold up the diner and he uses James Allen as his accomplice. He tells him to get behind the counter, grab the cash. James Allen, you know, doesn't really have much of a choice. This guy's holding a gun. So he goes back, grabs the money. Um, and then when they are trying to escape, the man who was behind all of this, who brought him to the diner, who told him to grab the money, he gets killed in a shootout. And James Allen just makes tries to make a run for it, but he gets caught. Uh, and at that point, that's when he's put on this chain gang and he experiences pure misery. Every morning, the prisoners wake up at 430 in the morning. Um, then they are um, doing backbreaking labor all day. The backbreaking labor, for the most part, seems to consist of um, bashing rocks with pickaxes. Um, they have to ask permission to wipe the sweat off of their brow. And then they return at to the to the prison at 8 30 so remember they get up at 4 30 in the morning they get back at 8 30 at night um 8 30 p.m uh to this meal which is uh, i'm quoting the film directly now a uh, meal of grease fried dough pig fat and sorghum um so that's what they eat they eat it all the time it said uh he first gets very sick from the idea but he realizes that it's the only thing that that he's going to eat uh, in this jail for years and years and years. I think he's supposed to be there for 12 years. Uh, if you're sick, if you get sick on the job of uh, bashing the rocks with the pickaxe, um, as one man was who fainted from illness, he was clearly very sick. He faints. They just dump water on him and make him get up and keep working. And then that night they come by because uh, they uh, they come through the, the, um, the, the warden or whatever comes through and is like, all right, who did a bad job today? And they point to the guy who is sick and the punishment um, for people like that, for people who acted out, for people who didn't work hard enough is to get whipped. Right. So he's going to go get, get whipped. And so you see these prisoners, you see the shadow of these prisoners sort of getting whipped repeatedly. Um, and in, in, in fact, in this one scene in the movie, Nobody ever says anything. No character ever mentions it. It's actually just very subtle in the film. But you see, while other things are going on in the shot, you see this man who has been a prisoner, who has been sort of tied up to this pole uh, outside of the prison. Now, obviously, that's a kind of punishment as well. And, and he's out there in what seems to be the, the hot sun. Um, so those are some of the experiences. Uh, James um, James Allen at one point eventually decides I'm going to get out of here. So he organizes an escape for himself. He ends up getting a job uh, after he escapes. He ends up getting a job as an engineer under the alias Allen James. Keep in mind, his name is James Allen, not the best alias i have to say um but nevertheless that's the uh, that's that's the one that he chooses for himself and he slowly begins to work his way up kind of what we discover in this moment is if he was only given a job back before any of this happened everything would have been a-okay but of course that's not what ended up happening so he ends up working his way up he ends up becoming this fairly prominent figure in chicago but he gets caught up in a relationship with a woman who eventually finds out what his identity is, who he is, and she ends up blackmailing him so that he stays with her. He eventually meets a woman that he's 
actually in love with and uh, that he wants to marry. And her name is Helen. And so he tells this woman who's blackmailing him. I, she's blackmailed him all the way to a, a marriage. So now they're married. And he's like, I want a divorce. Uh, and at that point, she uh, alerts the it's insinuated, I think, that she alerts the police as to his real identity. And he's arrested. So his arrest then turns into this media frenzy. And James ends up using this opportunity where the police come to his jail cell every day. He uses the opportunity to talk to them, talk to the media about the abuses he experienced while he was on the chain gang. And this becomes a big media story. Um, at that point, the police decide they're going to give him a deal. Uh, if he returns voluntarily for 90 days, he will be pardoned. So he agrees to this. But once he's back in jail, he quickly learns that the police and the government really have no intention of letting him out or let alone pardoning him. So uh, he escapes again. Now we're now it's kind of in the close to the very end of the movie. He escapes again and his whereabouts uh, are unknown. So a year goes by and nobody knows where he is. Nobody knows what became of him. They know he escaped, but they don't know what became of him. Uh, and, and then we get to the final, the very final couple of minutes or final minute really of the movie where Helen is sort of walking along the street and James Allen approaches her in the shadows, says, I just wanted to let you know, you know, that uh, here I am. And, uh, you know, she's like trying to find things out. He hears a noise and he starts to run off. Uh, and she says, uh, she yells after him as he's running away. She yells, uh, how do you live? And he responds, and this is the final line of the movie. He says, I steal. And that's the end of the movie. So that's I'm a Fugitive from a, a Chain Game. That last line i steal is uh, i think the most probably the most iconic moment from the film so okay now this movie in fact uh which came out in 1932 is based on a real story it's uh based on an autobiography that's why the name is kind of a bit funny i am a fugitive from a chain gang uh it's e even an unusual title for a movie from 1932 it's a very direct there's no kind of poetry to the name at all and that's because it's pretty much based on the title of the memoir, which was I Am a Fugitive from a Georgia Chain Gang, uh, written by this guy, Robert Elliot Burns. And I looked into the life of Robert Elliot Burns. And what I discovered through looking into this guy's life is that the movie is actually very faithful to his story. Virtually everything that happens in the movie, obviously probably characters didn't say the things that quite the way that they were said in real life. But for the most part, moment to moment, scene to scene, these things seem to actually happen to, um, to Burns, the, the real character, uh, the real person rather. And the only sort of major difference is that the ending of the movie is different because we are not left in any way with a kind of happy ending. Um, but obviously the real life story of Robert Elliot Burns, uh, well, maybe not obvious, uh, it ended considerably better. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the memoir and the movie um, sort of made his story um, that much more, um, put it much more in the public eye. Uh, he ends up largely getting exonerated um, because of this kind of extra attention that's being placed on him because of the book. And then the movie, which is really successful, the movie ends up being nominated for um, for Best Picture. Um, also, the, the movie um, 
was significant in terms of actually creating some sort of change. So in fact, um, the movie, actually, if we go, let me just uh, share another, sorry, share some, another website here. Give me one second. Um, okay, I'm going to share this. So this is a, a website about uh, late 20th century and contemporary afterlives, it's called. Uh, this was an exhibit in Georgia. Um, so they're talking about the chain gang. The decline of the Georgia chain gang began in the late 1930s after federal investigations and unfavorable media coverage increased awareness of road camps and their deplorable conditions. In 1938, Governor E.D. Rivers banned the term chain gang in preference for the more palatable public works camp and removed the shackles and chains that bound prisoners together. Yet road gangs continued to operate until Governor Ellis Arnold finally abolished the chain gang in 1943, which is a full 11 years after this movie came out. But when they talk about the increased media attention, one of those things was the movie, uh, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, and the, me the additional media attention that was elicited um, after that movie. So that was uh, uh, the movie in many ways is th therefore responsible for helping to sort of eliminate the chain gang, the chain gangs in uh, the United States, specifically in uh, Georgia. Um, so in some ways, I think that this can give us hope, right, that uh, a movie can produce that kind of change. Um, let me just take a quick drink of my beverage here. Because while it is, a, of course, a great thing that the movie did eliminate the chain gang, which is obviously was obviously a horrible thing. If you look at the if you look at the film, if that's anywhere if it's anywhere half as bad as the way it's portrayed in the film, it's clearly far too draconian. But of course, the prison system as it exists today is not exactly a paradise either. Uh, in fact, in many ways it's comparable to the kind of things that you could see in the film, I am a fugitive from a chain gang. So for example, um, human rights watch, uh, completed a study a few years ago on us prisons and they concluded And here, I'm going to quote them directly. Inmates have been beaten with fists and batons stomped on kicked shot stunned with electric devices, doused with chemical sprays, choked and slammed face first onto concrete floors by the officers whose job is to guard them. Uh, doesn't sound, in fact, it sounds worse than the whipping that we see in the film, which is also carried out by the officers whose job it was to guard them. Um, so uh, furthermore, inmates have ended up with broken jaws, smashed ribs, uh, perforated eardrums, missing teeth, burn scars, not to mention psychological scars and emotional pain. Both men and women's prisons, but especially women, fa face staff sexual abuse. And the report concludes, as we see in the film as well, that some have died. So, of course, it's an excellent thing that this movie um, led to significant reforms in terms of the prison system in the United States. But obviously, there's still enormous need for huge, significant changes in terms of this. And I, and I would imagine... I would imagine that the public, I don't have any statistics on this actually, but I would imagine that the public would be largely against uh, that particular kind of treatment. 
Um, so, uh, so, so, but in some ways, this movie does give us hope that certain cultural artifacts, cultural objects, like a movie, can enact, can lead to that sort of change, even if that changes maybe a little bit more than a decade down the road. Uh, it could, at the very least, start a conversation going. It could start the ball, ball rolling. So, in in some ways. Um, the movie is uh, extraordinarily successful just for that reason. Now, the movie isn't actually just about the inhumane treatment that prisoners receive. Um, there's a lot that's going on in this movie that I think is significant. And actually, just to get into it, um, it did remind me of another movie that I saw a few months ago for the first time. And that's a movie called uh, You Only Live Once by uh, Fritz Lang. Uh, that movie came out in 1937. Fritz Lang, actually, let me go once again to um, back to my favorite movies list. Fritz Lang is, for me anyways, one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, if you look at the list here, he's got a few, he's, I think he's got three movies on my top 232. Uh, Metropolis here, 1927, a kind of silent dystopian sort of classic film um and then what's the oh m m is a fantastic movie that he did uh german filmmaker he then ends up making i think he makes one movie uh, one french movie and then he makes a lot of english movies uh after that um one of them is you only live once uh starring uh, henry fonda which I'll talk about in just a second, uh, that did not make my list. So uh, while I do see a lot of similarities between You Only Live Once and I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, um, I do think that I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang is a, is a stronger film overall. Um, but he also made a great sort of noir film very, very late into his career called The Big Heat in 1953. Um, so as you can see, that spans a quite a bit of time, right? His Metropolis is what, 1927? Yeah. And The Big Heat comes out in uh, 1953. So uh, Fritz Lang, if you don't know Fritz Lang, I do highly recommend Fritz Lang again, fantastic filmmaker. But let me talk a little bit just for a second about You Only Live Once. You Only Live Once, as I say, is, uh, stars Henry Fonda, very early role for uh, Henry Fonda. He's an ex-convict, and he's trying to integrate himself back into sort of regular life. Um, uh, but he's having a hard time, right? Just like James Allen does, he's searching around for jobs and nobody wants to give him a job. But unlike James Allen, um, the character in You Only Live Once doesn't get a job because people know his reputation. There's actually an interesting inversion going on between the two movies because he, uh, the James Allen is a not an ex-con, but he's an escaped in the eyes of the law, he's an escaped con. In fact, he's not really an escaped con because he never really committed a crime in the first place. The character in You Only Live Once, I think, did commit a crime in the first place, if memory serves. He served his time. He's trying to integrate himself back into society. He comes back and uh, tries to get a job, but nobody will hire him. Um, and then eventually these guys, I think, I'm just going off of my memory here, so forgive me if I'm not getting exactly right, but eventually these guys come and they say, uh, will will you um, um, take part in this, some crime with us? And he says no, but the crime goes ahead anyways, uh, and uh, Henry Fonda's character gets blamed for it, and then the rest of the movie at that point is kind of a, a chase film. Now, that movie, which comes out five years after I'm a Fugitive for, from a Chain Gang, comes out in the year 1937. 
in many ways uh, a, about the same sort of thing as I'm a fugitive from a chain game, both about how it's if you're a little bit off kilter, if you're not playing the game, if you haven't played the game, if there's something about you that marks you in a particular sort of way, then, you know, you're you're never going to succeed in any particular way. Right. James Allen had that before he was even associated with the prison system. Right. He's uh he was a uh, fought in the war. And when he comes back, the war has changed him in some ways. He even says that at the beginning of the movie, close to the beginning of the movie, I changed when I was in the war. I don't want to come back and be the same thing that I was. Right. And the, the mere fact that he doesn't want to come back and just play the game that everybody wants him to play marks him. Right. He is told by his brother who is um, a priest and his brother says, you know, you have to go back. You, you don't want to just leave your job. You got this job waiting for you. The boss has been kind enough to hold this job for you this whole time. And now he's offering it to you again. You're saying no. And he's saying, I don't want to be that. I want to be something different. Well, he's not playing the game in this moment, right? He's he's uh, he's refusing to, to, to do the sort of work that other people want him to do, right? Uh, it's different for the character. You only live once. He's marked because he is an ex-con. Uh, but he's paid his dues, right? He should be able to reintegrate back into society, but he can't. He's marked for the rest of his life. So even though he doesn't, uh, you would think that that movie would kind of go, I still think You Only Live Once is a really good movie because it it doesn't do what you kind of expect it to do. Because when I was watching that movie, I thought, okay, he's not able to get a job. This means he's just going to go relapse back into crime because that's the only thing that he can do. That's not what he does, right? When he's given the opportunity to go back into crime, he decides to not do it. But nevertheless, when that crime takes place, he still gets blamed for it, right? Because he must be him. He's the ex-con. He's the guy that we didn't trust right from the beginning. As soon as he came out of jail, we never trusted him. This crime has happened, therefore it must be him. Um, so you, you kind of get this idea that the system... For both of these characters, the system, the way things are, the system is stacked against them, right? Right from the get-go, uh, that they can't fight against the system in some ways. Um, and in some ways, I think um, both of these movies, which have a lot of similarities, are are really kind of like feeding into a dominant conversation or a dominant belief that's going on during the 1930s. And that's one of the things that I think, think is quite interesting about I'm a Fugitive from uh, Chain Gang, because the story that it's telling is a real story. And that story took place largely in the 1920s, right? World War One ends in 1918. Um, and then he comes back and then he searches for a job and he gets caught up in this crime and he gets put on the chain gang. All of this is going on in the 1920s. So when um, when Burns writes the story, his memoir in the early 1930s, he's talking about basically the last 10 to 12 years of his life. So this all of this stuff really did happen and it happened in the 1920s. But I might suggest that a story like this could only really hook into an audience could have only hooked into an audience in the 1930s. Um, that doesn't mean maybe afterwards it couldn't have hooked into an audience, but I think that it would have been a more relevant story in the 1930s than it would have been in the 1920s, even though it happened in the 1920s. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Because that's a kind of a confusing statement. Why is this more relevant in the time that it didn't happen in? Um, well, um, 
I, I mean, in, in some ways, this, as I say, this story is kind of feeding into a lot of the conventions that were happening mostly in the 1930s. At one point in I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, very close to the end of the movie, this is after he makes his, after James Allen makes his second escape, um, which is a really kind of exciting moment. It involves explosives, it involves an exploding bridge, and all this kind of stuff, gunfire, um, a pretty thrilling and exciting moment um, that maybe a lot of people wouldn't necessarily expect from a movie made in 1932, although it's not entirely out of the ordinary. Actually, if I could just pause here for one second on that, um, uh, the star of this film, Paul Muni, uh, I hope it's Muni, could be Mooney, uh, but I think it's Muni, um, M-U-N-I, Paul Muni. Uh, if anybody watching wants to uh, make a correction there in the comments, please feel free. Paul Muni is the star of this movie. I have only seen him in two movies, but I think he was a big star back in the day. And in actual fact, though, his two biggest movies, which I have seen both of them, uh, were both made in this in the same year, 1932. So one is this movie, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. The other is Scarface, the original Scarface, not the Al Pacino version. Um, so, uh, which I'm sure most of you watching probably would not have thought was made in 1932. So, excuse me. So this, uh, so th these are the two movies that he's, I think most well known for both of them made within the same year. Both of them have a lot of really thrilling and exciting moments. Uh, you, you, if you are watching, you may have noticed that I don't have Scarface on this list either. I was another movie that I watched fairly recently. I like that movie a lot as well. It is quite action packed. It just doesn't quite make it onto that list for me, for me personally, but I certainly wouldn't discourage anybody from watching it because Scarface is a great movie as well. Um, all of that is just to say that there was a lot of thrilling and exciting movies being made in 1932. Uh, but Scarface doesn't quite fit into the sort of conversation that we're having right now. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't feeding into that sort of dominant issue that I think is at work that makes a story like I am a fugitive from a chain gang. So palatable and so successful in the era that it's released. Um, so at the end of the movie, as I was saying, um, the character James Allen, he escapes for a second time um, and then goes into hiding for uh, at least a year, for a whole year, um, which is different from the first time he escapes because the first time he escapes, he goes to Chicago, becomes, you know, has that fantastic alias Alan James. No one will ever figure that one out. Um, I was thinking the whole time of the TV show, The Fugitive, another great TV show from the 1960s, which was a huge show for me when I was a kid. Uh, that show, I think, ran from 1963 to 1967, so much later time period. But every episode, you have this guy, Dr. Richard Kimball. You may have seen the Harrison Ford movie that it's based on many years later. Um, every episode, he has this new name, right? Um, I just couldn't imagine his name being something like Kimball Richards or something like that. But um, nevertheless, uh, he gets by with that with that name. But he doesn't do that the second time that he escapes. He goes into hiding. And at one point, a newspaper headline comes up and the newspaper headline says, uh, is he too just another forgotten man? Um, now, this is a this is a, a line that would have definitely resonated with a 1930s audience in the way that it doesn't necessarily resonate now. And the only reason why it resonates with me is because I've seen several movies from this time that use this phrase, forgotten man. Let me just take another drink of my beverage here and I'll come back to you. 
forgotten man. Well, um, first of all, this movie is directed by a man by the name of Mervyn Leroy. I don't know too much about Mervyn Leroy, but I do know that um, he is a director of two movies on my list. Um, this one and one that came out a year after this one, uh, after I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, called Gold Diggers of 1933. Two extremely different movies in terms of genre. Gold Diggers of 1933 is a kind of a, a big, lavish musical, um, which has... Um, a lot of uh, choreography, dance choreography done by uh, Busby Berkeley, which I don't know. Many of you might not know who Busby Berkeley is, but Bus Busby Berkeley is, as far as I'm concerned, responsible for some of the greatest looking moments in film in the early 1930s. So he does a lot of dance sequences. There's a movie called Footlight Parade, which is another really great movie, which um, from the 1930s, which has its problems. It's it's a little bit flawed. It's although it's a really good movie. It's um, I think James Cagney is in it. Forgive me for not remembering. I've seen the movie a couple of times. It's a really good movie, because the thing that's so spectacular about Footlight Parade, the thing that makes it worth it, that movie came very 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 close to making my list, but I realized that the only reason why I was really going to put it on the list was because of those Busby Berkeley. I think it's Busby. If it's not Busby Berkeley, I, I don't know. Obviously, I just need to wrap it up. But, but I'm pretty sure Busby. I'm going to look this up now. Just one second, just to just to see. Uh, Footlight Parade. Give me a second here. Um, it's uh, it's got to be Busby Berkeley who has something to do with it. Yeah. So okay, musical numbers created and directed by Busby Berkeley. It's it 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 couldn't have been any other way because those moments. There's these this great moment in Footlight Parade where um, these people are. It's, it starts off in a, in a like a pool, like a lagoon. Uh, and there's this fantastic, also often parodied, you've probably, probably seen it in a few things, uh, these sort of iconic shots of people swimming in the pool. And it creates all these really fascinating designs, swirls. And it's all done live. You can tell that it's all being filmed live. And they're going around in, in circles and creating all these crazy patterns. And if... It's kind of like those sort of magic eye puzzles from when I was a teenager back in the 90s. You ever remember those magic eye puzzles where you'd look at a picture and if you stare at it in a very particular way, you can see a kind of pattern emerging. And with these dance sequences or swimming dance musical sequences in Footlight Parade, if you just kind of lose yourself in it, you forget that you're watching real life people who are doing these things. It just creates these really fascinating images and patterns. And it's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful to, to look at and, and it's mesmerizing and it, and it's confounding how they even were able to accomplish this and makes, they, they must have practiced it many, many times before filming it for the first time. I would have to imagine it was just choreographed over and over and over again. But a really, rem it's one of the most remarkable sequences in film, that that sequence in Footlight Parade. But, uh, but uh, Gold Diggers of 1933 has some remarkable ones too, including one that is titled um, Remember My Forgotten Man. And actually, I'll, I'll, I'll show a, a quick picture of them performing that. Uh, I know that many of you can't see this, unfortunately, but 
Um, here's just a picture of it right here. So as you can see just from the, the picture, well, it's a very small picture, obviously, from that. But um, there's all this stuff going on in, in the foreground. But all of those images in the back are meant to be soldiers. And those are all real people because you can see them marching when the, when the film is um, done live. So this is another really remarkable sequence. But it's a sequence called, um, it's called uh, Remember My Forgotten Man. And uh, the, the lyrics of the first verse, I'm going to read them out. They go like this. They go, Remember My Forgotten Man. You put a rifle in his hand. You sent him far away. You shouted, hip hooray, but look at him today. And who is he today? But he's this kind of penniless beggar, a man who lives in poverty. Um, in many ways, this verse is talking about the character from I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. So despite the fact that these two these two movies, both directed by the same guy, um, Mervyn Leroy, are extraordinarily different. They have this very interesting thread between the two of them. One, this kind of crime picture, the other, a kind of lavish musical. But there's this thread between the two of them. And both use this phrase, forgotten man. And in both cases, the forgotten man is the man who went off to war. He fought for... Uh, fought during World War One because uh, both of these movies are pre-World War Two. Fought in World War One, and they come back, and they're largely forgotten about by society. Right? Um, they're just kind of worthless now in society. Nobody's helping them, even though they did. You know, they went and put their lives on the line. Let's say. So okay, so that's the forgotten man. But but. Forgotten Man doesn't just refer to people who fought in the war. So there's another movie that's not directed by Mervyn Leroy um, that came out in 1936 called My Man Godfrey, which is another comedy. Um, My Man Godfrey is a very, it is on my list. My Man Godfrey is a movie about, um, about um, really class differences um, it's definitely satirizing the upper class. And uh, the movie begins with a group of socialites uh, on this kind of like uh, treasure hunt, um, scavenger hunt. And one of the things that they have been told to find for the scavenger hunt in order to win the hunt is a forgotten man. What that means is to basically go to the Bowery, go to the under the bridge uh, and take a homeless man and bring the homeless man back to, uh, I can't remember, a museum, something like that, where they were holding this event. Really awful, horrible, humiliating moment. Uh, and it's meant to be shown as awful and humiliating right it's it's uh, meant to be a comment on how these people just don't even care uh, about treating these homeless people as human beings um but they refer to them as forgotten forgotten men so a forgotten man really is a impoverished person um so when just to go back to uh the first 
uh, example from I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, is he too just another another forgotten man? That's a moment where it's making a commentary on just the sheer amount of impoverished people there are. Is he just another forgotten man? Now, this is where I think it becomes significant that this movie is coming out in the 1930s. And by the way, none of these movies are fringe cult films, right? As I said, I'm a Fugitive uh, was a huge movie, right? It, it had garnered so much attention that it helped sort of change um, the um, uh, police uh, or, or criminal punishment in in Georgia, at the very least. The movie was nominated for Best Picture. My Man Godfrey, which I just talked about, was nominated for Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, Best Actress. All three of these movies were financially successful. They continued to be iconic. Um, so these were none of these were sort of small movies that nobody watched, right? These were movies that were very much part of the mainstream at the time, um, right? And, and and that's crucial, I think. Um, although it is the case, interestingly enough, I should say, that when the movie first was pitched, there was a, the producers of the film were very nervous about the way that it ended, right? How do you live? I steal, right? That's the last line of the movie. This movie doesn't have a happy ending uh, at all. Uh, and this has been our hero for uh, the entire movie. His ending is incredibly ironic because, of course, how does he end up on the chain gang in the first place? But he's roped into a robbery against his own will, right? And so now what is he doing? What has the system turned him into? It has turned him into a, a thief, right? It's something that he never wanted to, to be, but he got... He got brought in by the system and turned into a criminal, right? So this system is turning people into, into criminals. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of, I think, nervousness and worry about that ending. But I think in some ways it really tapped into something in terms of the psyche of the people who are watching it. And after that, you get a bunch of movies that I think sort of convey very much that same sort of idea. That um, that song from Gold Diggers of 1933, Remember My Forgotten Man, If Memory Serves, is I think the final sequence of that movie. So that movie also ends sort of with that on that note. Um, there could be another couple scenes after that. I, I can't remember, but, um, but it certainly comes very close to the, to the end of that movie. Um, so yeah. So now again, why is this, why is this significant? So why do I think that this particular, this particular idea would resonate with audiences at this time rather than the 1920s? Well, for that, I'm going to share, uh, my screen one more time, I think. Maybe not one more time. Maybe I'll share it again in a bit. But let me go to this screen here. Um, this is, of course, a discussion of the Great Depression uh, and American social policy. Uh, and it starts off a little bit by talking about the poverty that was at work uh, in the early 1900s. But then it goes on to talk about the poverty that comes up because of the Great Depression. Now, I'm sure many people who are watching this know what the Great Depression is, but this should give us I think, important context. So I'm going to just read a lot of this directly. Um, this is from, again, a, a site called, uh, from, 
the Virginia Commonwealth University, a paper called Great Depression, American Social Policy, written by Jerry D. Marx, interestingly enough. All right, so the new poverty began, probably no relation. The new poverty began with the famous stock market crash of 1929 and the onset of the Great Depression. This is when many middle and upper class uh, upper income families first experienced poverty in America. Uh, these were hardworking people who fully shared the values and ideals of the American dream, right? That's significant. These are people who shared the values and ideals of the American dream, people who had enjoyed the strong economy of the 1920s, right? The economy was booming in the 1920s, the roaring 20s. They had bought homes, refrigerators, automobiles. Then the sudden and severe downturn of the American econ economy left many of these people in shock and denial. Some became suicidal. Between 1929 and 1933, right? Remember this movie, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, comes out in 1922, talking about moments from the Roaring Twenties, but really more aligned, I think, with the values and beliefs and the experiences of people in 1932. Between 1929 and 1933, unemployment in the United States jumped from 3.2% to 24.9%, almost a quarter of the official labor force. This represented, if you don't know what 24.9 represents. This represented 12.8 million workers. Unemployment in some cities was as high as 80%, eight out of 10 workers. During this period, consumer spending declined 18%, manufacturing output dropped 54%, and construction spending plummeted 78%. 80% of production capacity in the automobile industry came to a halt. By 1932, many politicians, businessmen, and journalists started to co contemplate the possibility of massive revolution in the United States. In fact, thousands of the most desperate unemployed workers began raiding food stores. I steal. Reminiscent of the food riots during the breakdown of the feudal system in Europe, this looting became widespread by 1932. Demonstrations by the poor demanding increased relief often resulted in fights with the police. In places like Harlem, the sit-down strike became part of the strategy during these relief demonstrations. A Pittsburgh priest named Father James R. Cox attracted 60,000 people to a protest rally. 12,000 of these followers later joined Cox in Washington to protest in front of President Herbert Hoover. When 5,000 war veterans demonstrated in Washington in the spring of 1932, Hoover sent none other than General Douglas MacArthur and Major Dwight Eisenhower to break up the rally. And then it describes the rally. And as it says down here, there was, of course, a political response. It was the New Deal that came about from um, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president. I talked a little bit about New Deal policies uh, two weeks ago, I think. Uh, I've lost all concept of time at this point. But when I talked about how in the 1950s, for example, the top tier marginal tax rate uh, was 90% in the United States. That was in the 1950s. That was a holdover from the New Deal policies, right? Where it was, where, and, and many other policies that were built to support for the most part, impoverished people and also labor to a large degree. And that is in many ways what played a huge role in creating a middle class, recreating a middle class, or just creating a middle class in the United States. What we come to think of as a middle class today that came out of the New Deal policies, created a tremendous amount of infrastructure and so on and so forth, right? So, um, so yeah, I mean, all of that, I think, is a, a significant background um, to explain what is at work in terms of the success of this movie, that yes, it's true this movie did come out 
in the 19 or this movie is talking about real life moments that happened in the 1920s. But I think it really taps into a 1930s mentality where there's dissatisfaction with the system. Not only are there a lot of impoverished people, that's not necessarily what I'm suggesting, although I think that there, that plays a role into it. So when he says, I steal at the end of it, that is tapping into something that's happening in the United States at that time. But more than that, there's just a dissatisfaction with the way the system has worked to destroy so many people's lives, right? You have huge rallies being organized, 60,000 people, rallies that then move to Washington. Um, there's fear amongst the upper elite that a revolution is going to happen. That is how angry people were with the system in the 1930s, right? People, and, and as it said, these were people who had bought into the American dream. They were wholesale supporters of the American dream in the 1920s. Then it all evaporates on them. And then they can't get a break anymore. And then who, of course, do they think is to blame for this? But it's the system, right? It's the system that they believed in wholeheartedly for so many years. And so I think you suddenly have this, this audience who are going to be receptive to stories that are critical of the system in many ways, which is exactly what's going on in I Am a Fugitive from a chain gang. And it's what's going on in so many movies in the 1930s, right? There's this incredible populist strain that is at work in these 1930s films. Stories about people who are on the margins of society. Stories about people who can't get a break. Stories about people for whom the system is stacked against them. Um, and just generally overwhelming systemic critique. Um, Charlie Chaplin, who was making movies as the little tramp as far back as the teens, the 19 teens, probably makes his best work, I think, in the 1930s. We have City Lights that's made in 1931, and we have Modern Times, which is made in 1936, um, both of which feature the little tramp character. He, interestingly enough, sort of abandons largely that character when he makes The Great Dictator in 1940. But in the 1930s is when you really the, the two great little tramp stories, City Lights and Modern Times, and who is the little tramp, but a forgotten man, a forgotten man who's continuously making the empowered people of society look ridiculous, right? Um, and they are always constantly flummoxed by the little tramp character because he just can't be easily contained, right? He's just so, so consistently um, beyond their reach. They, they trap him for a time, but they can't hold him for very long. Um, so he's this forgotten man who who actually quite often has the number of the um, more successful people in society, of the more empowered people in society. Although certainly um, by the time that the movies end, he's no better off really at the end of those movies than he was at the very beginning, perhaps in a more spiritual way, but certainly not in a um, a financial way and not in a kind of empowered way, I don't think necessarily. So um, you have those movies, you have the movies that I just described before, Gold Diggers of 1933, which is really, you know, it's a, again, it's a musical comedy film, but it's set against the backdrop of the depression um, and ends with that song, Remember My Forgotten Man. You have uh, My Man Godfrey, which deals very, very much directly with um, homelessness. Um, and uh, again, a lot of the, the characters in that film uh, were successful at one point, but 
became impoverished over time. Uh, and you have, I saw a movie uh, again a few months ago, great movie by a filmmaker, very well, highly regarded filmmaker named William Wyler. <clears throat> William Wyler did a, movies like uh, Jezebel, the best years of our lives. The best years of our lives is a very good movie, but a lot of his movies never really connected with me personally, although he's an extremely well regarded filmmaker. I never quite made a connection with his film until I saw an early movie of William Wyler's called Dead End, which stars Humphrey Bogart, <clears throat> which is a fantastic movie. The lot that when I saw it, it was on Amazon Prime. So if you have that, you might want to check it out there. But Amazon Prime, uh, but Amazon Prime I was just about to explain to you what that was. Uh, Dead End is about this kind of um, uh, poor neighborhood that has these um, high rises built into it where rich people live and they're consistently looking down on the poor community. And you have Humphrey Bogart who sort of come made it big as a criminal and comes back into, into town where he was a poor kid. Again, another movie that very, that deals with um, um, poverty and class issues in a very complex and complicated ways. Uh, you have a, a, um, the Grapes of Wrath that comes out, John Ford film that comes out in, I think, 1940. Um, these are huge movies. These are big movies starring, starring big Hollywood stars. This was the mainstream. And I think that that's really significant given the fact that, you know, we had our own, uh, my generation had our own sort of great depression in many ways. We had our financial crash of 2008 and, um, the difference, two differences that, that came out of it. One difference is that there was no new deal that came out of it. Um, the, uh, the financial institutions that were largely responsible for creating the crash, um, they got resuscitated as a result of um, uh, financial packages that were paid for by the people through taxes. This is in the United States. Um, but the uh, public was largely excluded from the financial relief. Um, it certainly excluded, uh, relatively speaking, to the financial institutions that caused the crash. Um, so uh, there was no real New Deal like there was in the 1930s. And by the way, once again, and I said this a few weeks ago, the New Deal was by no means perfect. Uh, it was very much flawed. There were people who were um, certain cultural groups, of course, who were uh, often excluded from um, the New Deal policies, didn't stand to benefit from them in the way that other people did. Um, seems to me that there's an easy fix for that. A lot of people hear that and they say, well, that means we shouldn't we shouldn't um, go with New Deal policies. Seems to me that the actual appropriate response to that is to say that we uh, do go ahead with New Deal policies. We just include the people who have been ex historically excluded. And that shouldn't be actually all that hard. But nevertheless, I, I, I digress. Uh, so that was one change. There was no New Deal um, that came out of it. Uh, and there was also no mainstream cultural uh, response to this financial meltdown. Um, that is not to say that there was no response to it whatsoever, that there was silence. Of course, there were people who addressed it, um, but not in the same way that we see in the 1930s. 
not in the same way that we see the biggest stars of the time, like Charlie Chaplin, movies that are nominated for Best Picture, like I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, even movies that you wouldn't expect to talk about it at all, like uh, Gold Diggers of 1933, musical comedies, seem seemingly very simple films. Um, they engage with this. It's consistent. It's just a consistent aspect of movies in the 1930s, and they are fantastic films. You know, they're not... Um, they're not overly polemical. I don't think they, they are engaging with these, these ideas in ways that are incredibly complex and they don't always necessarily engage with them in a way that I'm fully on board with ideologically. So my man, Godfrey, which I would put, which I did you go back and check the list, go back in the video and check my man. Godfrey is in my list of 232 films it ends in a way that, you know, if I were making the film, which I didn't make the film, um, but if I did make it, I wouldn't have ended the movie the way that it ended. But I don't mind the way that it ended. I like the way that it ended, even if it's not quite ideologically aligned with me. Um, you know, I, I just the mere fact that these movies are engaging with these issues is incredible. And it demonstrates to me just the overall lack of those kinds of stories in our particular time. Um, to give another sort of example, uh, as I mention a lot in these podcasts, I teach uh, occasionally I teach a superhero class. Um, the superhero, interestingly enough, emerges in the late 1930s. It in some ways emerges out of this atmosphere, I would, I would suggest, right? Um, that in these times of desperation, uh, po massive poverty, uh, you end up having the creation of superhero characters, larger than life characters. Now, that's one thing that does exist in our time, right? We have this extraordinary, um, extraordinarily large amount of superhero stories, right? Just every third movie is a superhero story. Um, but the superhero that emerges in 1938, the very first superhero is Superman. And Superman is the champion of the oppressed, right? That is what he is called in that first book, a champion of the oppressed. Now, what does champion of the oppressed mean? Well, in that, in his very first comic, that means um, finding out somebody who is being given the death penalty and um, proving that person innocent of the crimes that he committed. It's about... Um, uncovering the relationship between the weapons manufacturers and the states. The weapons manufacturers, by and large, are uh, paying off congressmen to, uh, for, to uh, push the United States into war so that the manufacturers can make more and more money. Um, this is a, an issue that um, Dwight D. Eisenhower raises in 1960 or 1959, around that time when he's leaving office. Um, it's being broached as far back as 1938 in the Superman comic. And in a subsequent comic, I know it's like the sixth one down the line. He visits this impoverished town and he recognizes that the only way that the government is going to come in and help this town is if there's some environmental disaster. Otherwise, they're not going to help this impoverished town. So what Superman does is he uses his superpowers to create the condition of an environmental disaster so that the government will actually come in and um, help the people of this town. 
that's the superhero that's created in the 1930s, right? That's the kind of character that is created. Those are not the kinds of superheroes largely that we're seeing today. And I think it's interesting as well that we see like Superman movies coming out now that continue to be failures. Um, when in fact, all they need to do, I think, is to be that kind of Superman character from the 1930s. There would definitely be an audience for that. A Bernie Sanders-like uh, Superman character, I think, would absolutely appe be uh, appealing in, in this particular generation. <clears throat> but that doesn't happen now. And that's just because there's, I think, in many ways, that there's just so much money uh, that goes into making these movies um, from these big studios that the impulse is to not make these kind of socially conscious films. But they were made in the 1930s. There was a definite awareness of what was going on in the public mindset. And it was being represented consistently. And those movies were extremely successful. And they're also extremely effective as well. Um, so I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang is one of the early examples of it in terms of a, a, a talking moving picture that deals with these kinds of things. Um, and it's uh, it's very exciting in the way that it, it does deal with it. And it doesn't, again, it's it's not... It's not a film that's kind of beating you over the head with a political message. It's actually, it's a very exciting film. Um, you really feel for this character, I think, as you go through it. But at the same time, it is tapping into this um, very public conscious mindset at that time. I want to actually bring up one other thing that I think is interesting about the, the film. There is... Um, some race representation in the film. So in the prisons, there are white prisoners and there are black prisoners. And in fact, at the very end of the movie, um, when he's, uh, when uh, Paul, no, James Allen is, uh, is going back into jail for his, what he thinks is going to be 90 days, um, they change the number of the amount of prisoners on the blackboard going in and they change the number. And this is not alluded to. We just see it on the screen. 34 white prisoners, 69 black prisoners. Now, interestingly enough, I think that somebody could watch that and think, oh, this movie is making a racist assumption about what racial groups commit more crime, which, you know what, is a fair, it's a, a fair um, assumption about what the movie is doing. But I don't think that that is what the movie is doing. I don't think it's making that kind of racist assumption in that movie. Because after all, this is a movie that is really about how the system does not mete out fair justice. The system, the movie tells us over and over and over again, is set up to capture desperate people but also to settle scores based on personal grudges, biases, and vendettas, right? When they send James Allen back to jail, they tell him, you're only going to be in there for 90 days. The reason why they go back on that is because he badmouthed them to the press, right? This is not about justice. They were not keeping him in jail because they thought that he needed to serve out his time. No, they were keeping him in jail as a punishment for making them look bad. So this is not a fair system in any ways that we're seeing in this film. This film is very open about how this is an entirely unfair system. It's an entirely biased system. And it's a system that captures desperate people and settles score based on biases, personal grudges, and so on and so forth, right? Um, and this, again, in many ways, speaks to the reality of the justice system that is work at work today. Um, for example, as noted in a report to the United Nations, here I'm going to quote directly, 
African Americans are more likely than white Americans to be arrested. Once arrested, they are more likely to be convicted. And once convicted, they are more likely to experience lengthy prison sentences. So if a white man and a black man are um, uh, um, proved guilty of committing the same crime, on average, the black person is going to receive a lengthier jail sentence than the than the white person. Right? That's the way that the system works. Uh, and I think in many ways, this is precisely what the movie is calling to our attention in that moment. The movie is not really addressing race in any particular way, but I think in that moment it does. And I think it's actually making a very complex uh, point and a, and, a, and a very accurate point. Um, so that those are my thoughts on I am a fugitive from a chain gang. I, I hope that you uh, might be... Uh, compelled to watch this film. Uh, as I say, I saw it on the Criterion channel. Um, I'm not sure where else that you can find it at this moment, but wherever you get your movies, wherever you watch your movies, this is one that I do highly recommend. A fantastic biopic from 1932. And those are my thoughts for today. So thank you so much for uh, watching, and we will see you in the next one. All the best.